Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. John writes and says, After this I saw four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. I might pause there for just a minute as I make a comment that the ancients, the pagans, the other religions besides Judaism and Christianity had a, a great respect, a great fear uh, about wind and gods and uh, they, they had some, some weird religious ideas about how much control the gods really had over the winds but whenever he talks about Jehovah God the Most High God commanding four angels to command the wind this would have an impact on that culture for understanding that the message here is God has complete control over all the elements that would have put him in this passage in this description so far above all the other gods and their beliefs about their powers and what elements they could control. Now we would miss that in our culture. We don't read that and understand the implications of that. But once again, as I said, what John is giving to the churches is a consistent uh, glorification of God and admiration of him and placing him above every other god. Now let me continue to read. He's, he says, I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our gods. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And then of course, the next part of the chapter moves into listing each tribe and repetitively saying uh, that 12,000 were taken from this tribe. You, will, you might notice, or you, if you don't, I'll let you know that the tribe of Dan is missing from this list. And we're not exactly sure why. Some have speculated that the history of the tribe of Dan was so offensive to God so wicked that he was not deserving, that tribe is not deserving of being listed here. But I'm not sure that that argument is uh, convincing because all the tribes had a history of having forsaken God and angered him. So uh, there's speculation about it. It's missing. I'm not going to provide you the definitive answer as to why. It's just a bit of trivia. But one of the most common interpretations of the 144,000 that are sealed against the coming tribulation, these four angels given the power to, to bring judgment and destruction upon the land, upon the sea, and the four winds controlling all this power, 
and given instruction, don't do it until we seal the 144,000. So they are protected from the danger, the harm that is coming. And as I started to say, one of the most popular interpretations of this is the dispensational interpretation to take this passage literally and that's the default guideline of dispensationalists is when they read Revelation there's kind of a rule of thumb here that they say when we read Revelation we're going to take everything literally unless we find it impossible to take literal and then we'll take it symbolically and we'll find out what the literal application is <clears throat> for instance uh, we find in the book of Revelation there's a vision of uh, a dragon in the heavens and his tail swept a third part of the stars and knocked them out of the heavens and the dispensationalists will say well obviously that's that's not literal there is no literal dragon in heaven and literal stars being knocked out so they seek the symbolic uh, uh, the meaning of that symbol the literal interpretation of that symbol of that symbol so the the literalists will look at 144,000 and say well it's not hard to believe is not impossible to believe that God could extract 12,000 from each of the tribes and 144,000 will go so they will make a an attempt at a literal interpretation of 144,000 uh, basically Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel and by extension what they say is these are the Jews who are going to be converted one day to accepting Jesus Christ as their Messiah and uh, they will be saved during that hour of the tribulation that's all believable but they're not really taking it literal because if you go to the 14th chapter of Revelation where it once again deals with the 144,000 you discover there that they are described as all being male Jewish virgins in which case then if you are going to take it literal no women allowed and then they back up and say well but you know you have, well, of course we have to make exceptions we have to try and adapt so you really are not fully hundred percent committed to taking things literal you always bend it to make it believe what make it say what you want it to say so this tension between how, what do we take as literal and what do we take as symbolic is always there and there's always debate about where is that line drawn between the symbolic and the literal? So rather than getting bogged down in all of that, because I don't want you to fall asleep on me, we're going to back away from that just a little bit and take a broader look at it when God is sealing the 144,000 and just extract some encouraging truths from this rather than dealing with the minutia of this. What does this question what does this, this passage say to us? That's what we always want to get down to. We, we like to understand what it's saying to them in the context. But what it's saying to us? And once again, we know that the case for God's powerful omnipotence is unquestionably being, unquestionably being made. And there, we also see that there's the assurance that in this ongoing battle of good versus evil, God's always going to win. Uh, that's one thing we continuously need is encouragement. I do. 
I'm not impervious to the attacks of the enemy coming along and suggesting to me it's hopeless, it's useless, you're worthless. Just give it up. How many of you have heard that message from the enemy sometime in your life? How many of you have heard it in the past few days? <laughs> because that's his message. He, just, he wants to discourage you. And when we read God's word and we find those things that bring encouragement to us, that we walk away from the reading of the word empowered and encouraged. And we say, I'm not giving up. I'm not going to quit. I hope you've been able to see thus far in our series in Revelation that there's a bright message of hope in this book. You know, we have historically studied Revelation looking at it like this book of future gloom and doom that is coming. And you've probably had heard prophecy teachers and in the history of this church, I, I would assume you've probably had some pretty famous prophecy teachers come to Westside and teach on Revelation and bring their charts and stretch them out across there and show you how it's all charted out, things are going to happen. And I've seen those teachings. I have charts in my office. And I, I, I'm telling you that almost always the whole complexion of those teachings, the, the, the tenor of that, is, is kind of a, a gloom and doom. Look what's coming upon the earth. We're going to come to the point where there's a rapture and after that everything's going to go downhill and there's going to be tribulation and stars falling from the sky. The rivers are going to turn to blood and, and people are going to cry out in pain and scorpions are going to rise out of the abyss and they're going to sting people and people are going to cry out to die and they can't die. I mean it's, just, it's horrid this picture that you're painting until you get down to the end where you finally got this victory with Jesus coming. But there's this gloom and doom associated with Revelation yet there is this theme that is often covered up by that gloomy message. And the theme is one of seeing the bright side of all of this. I've tried to bring out the bright side of this throughout this series. We can be encouraged by this message that, that when God seals 144,000, you know what that tells me? It doesn't tell me who they are. But it tells me when God says to the four angels, do not bring any destruction on this land until I've sealed my people. Then do what you want and they'll be safe. And I look at that and say, that's my God. Whenever he draws a line in the sand and says, these are my children and I'm telling the powers of hell, don't you cross that line. God's got a line for your life that the enemy cannot cross if God says don't cross it. He's got limits he's established. And sometimes we might think in our spiritual battles, God, I'm being pummeled down here by the powers of hell. Don't you care? God's got the limits set. And you can rest assured the enemy's not going to get away with anything that God hasn't permitted him to do and that God has a response for, and you're going to be all right. We see this passage and we see his preeminence we see his prevailing power we see his care and provision over his own in the midst of chaos in the midst of turmoil God never allows the enemy free reign so let's don't lose the positive message in the confusion of the message of the coming judgment now, and along with that 
We can be encouraged by the, by the message of God's ability to prevail over seemingly impossible odds. That's the one that seems to get us defeated, discouraged. We are doomed to viewing circumstances through human eyes and human logic. What kind of a super Christian do you have to be never to doubt God? Never to get discouraged. So we all wrestle with that. We all look at life and the circumstances through human eyes, through, through the lens of our perspective, our earthly perspective. Sometimes you sit and wonder, how am I going to make it to the next day? I'm not going to make it through the next hour. You seem overwhelmed. Now, when John only got two numbers about multitudes, and one number was there's 144,000. Now, let me say, just before I go any farther, the, the gathering of the, of the 144,000 to the recipients of this letter would have had a military flavor to it because they would have understood in the gathering of armies that they would come in blocks of a thousand. And historically in the Old Testament when God would be putting together an army he would request give me a thousand or multiples of a thousand from each tribe and they would put it together. So they being familiar with their own history would read this and say that sounds kind of military. Like in this 144,000 there's implications that God is putting together some sort of an army. That would have had that natural normal association and flavor to them. So uh, let's do what they do. Let's read that with a military essence to it. God putting together 144,000. Now the second number that John received was whenever there's angels that are released from the river Euphrates and they put together this army with creatures and beings coming out of the earth. And John looks at that and a number is given to him. 200 million. It's the only two numbers of companies of people specifically given. God's army of 100,000, and which whether it's literally 100,000 or not, the point is it's small compared to the earth's army of 200 million. Now, now you're beginning to see this, this Gideon principle where, you know, 300 can whip 30, thousands, can whip thousands. And God always allows his opponents to think they have the advantage. God doesn't need their weapons. He doesn't need their numbers. He doesn't need their tactics or techniques or strategies. He, do, he doesn't need any of that. God can do the impossible with the impossible. 144,000. Earth gathering their army, 200 million. They don't, they don't have a chance. <laughs> so so I, when I said we back away from this and we read this, and what are we seeing? We're seeing the ability of God 
that odds don't bother him. They bother us. It's like, here we are, a church. And Lord, if we just had more money, do you think God is worried about that? Lord, what can we do if we just had more people? Well, I've just given you examples right there when God says, why does it matter if you have more people? I can do anything I want to do with people who are yielded to me and willing to let me work through them. Westside, who we have in our church doesn't limit us in what God can do with us. We can do anything God wants us to do. And if we sit here and wring our hands and say, well, I just don't know that we can do that. You don't have this, this understanding of how big God is. You're missing the point here. He knows one. He just wants willing, obedient people given to him. So we shouldn't lament, well, we're only a small church. There's only so many things we can do. No, we've got a big God. There's anything that is, that is possible with God. The enemy loves to drive you to emotional despair. And I'm going to tell you, I do believe this is one of his most powerful weapons, is to play with your mind. If he can get you to give up by playing with your mind before you ever have to fight the battle, he won. I remember watching uh, Muhammad Ali play mind games with his opponents. He won a good share of his boxing matches before he ever stepped in the ring. This loudmouth braggart who would prophesy which round he's going to knock his opponent out in. Often, often he did. But it just, it just shook his opponents. Ridicule them and call them names. And laugh at them. And I think they gave up the fight before they ever stepped in the ring. People that were stronger than him, taller than him. But they just quit. And I, I maybe Satan watched. No, I don't think so. <laughs> he probably had this before Muhammad Ali came along, didn't he? He started this technique of saying, if I can just beat him in the brain... He doesn't want it to come down to mano y mano. He doesn't want it to come down to you and God versus him. He doesn't want that. He loses that. He doesn't want you to step in the ring. He loses. When you and God get in the ring, he wants you to get, you, get to you before you get in the ring with him. So he's working on your brain. He plays mind games. He wins more battles in the mind than he ever wins in reality. And he knows that. He loves to drive you to despair. He loves to, loves to have you just say, okay, I surrender. I can't do this. The fight hasn't even begun yet. It's all right here. It's much easier for him to overwhelm and intimidate you and make you willingly surrender than it is for him to get in there and do hand-to-hand -hand combat with you. And the reason is simple, because God is, his record is like a billion 
and zero. He always wins. And he doesn't want it to come to that. I mean, there's, there's no losses. There's no draws. He always wins. So he has to avoid that confrontation. The worst thing you can do is throw in the towel before the fight even starts. Or throw it in before it's over. You lose when you quit. You lose when you despair. You lose when you surrender to what you think are overwhelming circumstances. One of the most upsetting, shocking bits of news that we got in the past week was the story of a young pastor out in California. I think it was, and he was struggling with depression, discouragement. Had, had some treatment for it, and uh, he was getting back into his groove in ministry, and even preparing a series for his church about how to deal with discouragement, how to deal with depression. Before he ever got to the point of being able to present that, he committed suicide. Left his lovely young wife, his little children, two children, three children, th three children. It just shocked the Christian world. One fellow pastor wrote this, depression is real. And pastors are not exempt or defective who experience it. He says, in this generation, listen carefully, pastors are expected to be business savvy, Instagram quotable preaching celebrities. Fully accessible, deeply spiritual, not too young and not too old. And if a pastor doesn't quite measure up to someone's expectation at any given moment, this is the part that shocks me. They are given a two-star rating on Google. Let me recommend that you pray for your pastor and support your church faithfully. You probably never realize what they walk through privately. Now, I read that, and I thought about it. You know, we have never, the church has never lived in a day and age where the church and the pastor could be given public ratings. Where everybody can go out there and read this two-star rating. Now, we, we run a daycare, the church. And we have a, a, a presence on the internet. If you want to look us up in the yellow pages, we are there. Look us up on Google, we're there. And because we have that presence, you also have the capacity, you make it available for people to go on there and make comments about you. So, you know, if you go and, and look at, at Westside and, and daycare, you'll, you'll see people say, I love this daycare and what it meant to our family. And then you find some disgruntled somebody that will say that the worst, trashiest things that they can say about how hateful and how it's a zoo and how to, because it's usually the pe people that don't want to pay their bills. And so they go online and they, and they uh, trash us. And just from that perspective, that's an annoying thorn in your side. It never goes away. You, you can read all the good reports. You come to this one and it's just a, a, a thorn in your side. You go, ah. Now, can you imagine that same principle applying to a church you got a great church you got loving people you know what it's all about and you got somebody that's angry about something 
And the church has always had its opponents. They've always had their adversaries. They've always had people fight against it. But I told you, the enemy likes to fight in your brain. So in this day and age, because we are so keyed to what do people think of us? That whenever you go to the internet and you read you got a one-star rating, that has a tremendous emotional impact. And, and this pastor had brought this out. We're dealing in a day and age when you get a one-star rating, a two-star rating on Google or on Yelp or someplace else, and, and it just never goes away. I've had people come into my office and give me what for and tell me what they thought I was and leave. And as soon as they left, it's pretty well over for me. But when you hang a one-star rating out there that's never going to go away, for all the world to see, I deal with that. Oh, these angry people. I'd rather you come in and just punch me and get it over with. It'll heal up, you know. But don't give me a one star. No, well, I'm being facetious. <laughs> in, in case you're revving up. I'm being... Now, I said all that to say this. I'm not making this about pastors. I'm making this about how the enemy plays in your brain. And tries to get to you. And how important in this age of social media it has become for us to find acceptance. And even uh, social media things like Facebook. Where, where people are constantly looking for affirmation. They, they want to put something on there that has a huge response. And if you don't get a good response it's ruined your day. Because we have acclimated ourselves to getting affirmation in this day and age. Now, the, the enemy working on your brain, bringing depression, bringing anxiety. Now, the, I mentioned last week Fox's Book of Martyrs. And those people who gave their lives, they weren't worried about one-star ratings. They were worried about being skinned alive. They were worried about being burned alive. But the enemy knows if he can get us into anxiety, into discouragement, into depression. He didn't have to worry about actually fighting us because those who burned were burned at the stake never gave up the faith. That's where their faith was made stronger. If he could have got to their brain before they got to the fire, before they got to the execution block, he might have won a battle. So you've got to keep your mind stayed on God. It's just one example of the mental games that Satan plays. And it relates to how we choose to read Revelation. Do, do we read it with fear and trepidation? Do we see the encouraging message that no matter what the enemy does, God wins? Or do we look at Revelation and we, and we dread and we fear? And gloom and doom, the, the world is coming to an end. Or do you read it with encouragement? It, maybe it'll change the way you read Revelation from now on. Instead of worrying about how bad it's going to get, you can delight in how great God is and how he can guide us through those things. Instead of coming out of Revelation depressed, you can come out of Revelation encouraged and excited with a fresh vision of who God is. 
I want to take you to the, the sealing of these servants. They are sealed against the judgment that's coming on the earth. Commands the angels, don't do any damage until I get them sealed. So, this danger, the harm that is coming up on the world, God's going to spare his servants. But you know what he did not seal them, seal them against? He didn't seal them against martyrdom. Now, you won't have to worry about the pestilences. You won't have to worry about the plagues. You won't have to worry about the, the uh, astral, uh, the, the, the meteors falling out of the sky. You won't have to worry about rivers turning to blood. All you got to worry about is being speared to death. Now, do, do you not find that odd that God can protect them from all these things? Yet he says, but you're going to die a horrible death. And I, I think that there's a question that inevitably arises when we think about this. We say, God can protect us, but why sometimes does he not? What about the times when God's children are not protected from suffering and tragedy? Where was God then? And I think that's a question every one of us have pondered and maybe you've even faced in your life. God, I know you can. Why don't you? I know you can stop this. Why don't you? I know you can put a hedge around me. Why don't you? If he has the ability to seal his servants from the, eject, uh, the effects of judgment falling on the earth, then what about the pastor in California a few years ago when I was pastoring out there, Assembly of God pastor down in the Bay Area, stayed late at church to study on a Saturday night. It was late at night. He finished up his studies, locked up his church, stepped outside the back door and was coming down the steps, and he was murdered by a gunman. They never did know why. Why? This man's trying to serve you, God. He's preparing his sermon, sacrificing his time with his family to be down here to be ready for what you've called him to do. Why? We've got these questions. What about the pastor in Alabama? I held a revival for him, and he told me with tears in his eyes about that morning when he got up, got in his car, backed out of his driveway, ran over his own child. I looked at him and I thought, dear God, I would, I would be in an, in an insane asylum, not pastoring some church somewhere. Why? What about David Brainerd, the famous missionary to the Native American Indians on the East Coast, riding his horse from tribe to tribe through driving snow, hollowing out snow drifts to make himself a place to sleep driven in his passion to take the gospel to the Christless pagans. He died of tuberculosis before his 30th birthday. Why? Oswald Chambers, who wrote My Utmost for His Highest, probably the best devotional that's ever been written suddenly dies of appendicitis at age 43. If you've ever read Oswald Chambers, he, he was brilliant. Snatched out of this world with plenty of life potentially left. Why? 
thought about Emma Moss, the daughter of Salvation Army's founders, William and Catherine Booth. She was ill on a train. It was in a train wreck. Everybody survived except Emma Moss. She, the daughter of the founders of Salvation Army, lost their own child. Why? Out of all those people on those trains, some of them don't even know you, God. Don't, some of them don't love you. Some of them hate you. Why our daughter? If God can seal us and protect us, then why doesn't he? And this is the point at which some people get bitter with God. And are you sitting there with great anticipation? Pastor's going to tell us why. <laughs> Put your pen and paper away. I don't know takes a brave person to say I don't know especially when everybody expects you to know let me tell you what I do know God's in charge I, I know that let me tell you what I know God has a better plan no matter what plan the enemy has for you I, I have gone back to that story of Joseph more times in my ministry than probably any story in the Old Testament. And his own brothers sell him. How do you explain that? It's so absurd. Sold him in the Egyptian bondage. And he goes into Egypt and he does well for himself, but then he gets thrown into prison. And, and did, did God design? I mean, you know, whenever those, when those brothers stood before Joseph and, and they're trying to think of some sort of an apology, <laughs> and Joseph said, well, what the enemy meant for bad, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You know, are we to believe that God moved on these jealous brothers and said, now I want you to sell Joseph? Probably not. He didn't use that kind of a tactic to get Joseph into Egypt. The enemy was working here. Whenever Joseph was in Egypt, did he move on Potiphar's wife and say, go and try and seduce him so that we can create a situation where he gets thrown into prison? No, I don't think so. I think the enemy's at work trying to bring Joseph down. But see, God has this unique ability to take anything that the enemy does and say, I can work with that. You, you think you've got a, a bad plan. You think you're going to mess things up. You've just given me a foundation that I'm going to turn this into the best thing that ever happened to these people. God does that. And you can't say that God caused it to happen, but he turned it around. And it made it look like, boy, I wonder if God made that happen to begin with. No, he just turned it into a miracle for you. I don't know why. But I know one thing. What God wants us to do is no matter what happens in our life is continue to trust him. That I do know. And we don't trust him just because we can get explanations and answers. We trust him because our faith is grounded and we know that's all we have to do is trust him. We don't have to understand the old song says, I don't need to understand. I just need to hold your hand. 
Sometimes God allows suffering for a greater cause. Like God told Abraham, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will. Then we read the last part of this, and I've just got a couple of minutes. I'm not halfway through, just because I'm reading the last half of this. I'm almost through with my sermon. I pick up in verse 9, and if you'll bear with me while I read the next cluster of verses. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will never, never again will hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them to living waters, fountains of waters. And God, once again, when the Bible says something twice, take notice, sit up and listen. And God shall wipe away all their tears from their eyes. Two times in that last part, he reminds us, every tear will be wiped away. You know what that says? First of all, I want to back up to the beginning of that. When you've got this multicultural gathering in heaven. Does that surprise anybody? It shouldn't. And the more multicultural we are here on earth in our fellowship, the more like heaven we are. The, the, the more restricted we are in our fellowship down here, that we just want us and people like us, the less godly and the less like heaven we are. But the more multicultural, the more God loves that. Now, in this life, we have and we struggle with the divisions and the racial divisions. And I, that's not going to go away here on earth. But we don't have to bring it into God's house. We are all children of God. And, and also, you understand the multicultural things that are going on in heaven. How many of you, when you get to heaven, are hoping that Bill Gaither is there with his 